America is not really on the right track towards health. Obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. We need these guidelines to get us on track, especially during a pandemic where lifestyle has a big role in the outcomes of this pandemic. We took this document and dumped it, as you say, with absolutely no real good advice anyway to get people moving in the right direction. If you were a teacher, what grade would you give them? This is not the transcript to send to college. It's disappointing. It's just all around disappointing. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And boy, oh boy, did 2020 ever end with a surprise. The Dietary Guidelines unexpectedly dropping between Christmas and New Year's. There I am sitting at the kitchen table. Get an alert on my phone. The dietary guidelines are out. What? What is this? Immediately, I thought back to when I was a reporter and people who had bad news to share whether it's an agency or a team or whatever, they would tend to drop it late on a Friday afternoon so that everyone was already checked out because it's the weekend, nobody's really paying attention. We called that the Friday news dump. And that is exactly what I thought was happening with the dietary guidelines. Why else would they be released with no warning at such a peculiar time? Is there a reason for that? It appears so because in a lot of areas, these dietary guidelines came up well short of steering Americans toward a healthy diet. So on the show today, we will be examining what these guidelines have to say with dietitian Susan Levin. She has been following all of this very closely for years. She even testified before the advisory panel who helped to craft these guidelines for the USDA. So here's specifically what we will be looking at on the show today what the guidelines say regarding the evidence now that there is about the health benefits that come with eliminating meat and eliminating dairy from the diet. And what about added sugar? What do they say about that? And alcohol consumption, that seemed to be more than anything else what the media picked up on was sugar and alcohol. Very interesting that the USDA actually bucked what the scientific advisory panel recommended as far as cutting back on sugar and alcohol. We'll be getting into that. Also, we're going to be talking about the racial disparities and the racial bias that come with these new dietary guidelines. And that plays specifically toward dairy. Also going to be talking about the massive updates for the first time The guidelines, including children under the age of two. So what should children that age be eating or more specifically not eating? And what about the overall trend toward a more plant-based diet? We've seen that in other countries with their recommendations. Are we seeing the same thing here? Or is this a bunch of bad news like a Friday news dump? Well, let's find out right now. Here's my conversation with Susan Levin all about these new dietary guidelines. Susan, thank you so very much for being here and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 
here to you, Chuck. Thank you. Were you like me when you're sitting there in between the holidays and you see that the new dietary guidelines were released? And were you just blown away by the timing of that? Yes, the way you described it was kind of perfect. Like you're relaxing. I think I might have been even holding my phone and probably did a spit take with my coffee. Just like, what? They released them today? Um, no, it was tomorrow. They were, they, the announcement was on a Monday for the next day. Um, and, you know, you, you immediately start fumbling and typing your people. And luckily, no one at PCRM stops working. So it's like, we, we got to do this now. But uh, yeah, it was definitely, it was, it was something it yeah. was, it was, I don't know if it was a news dump or a panicked release just to make it in the 2020 year. I really, I can't say. I, 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 I say. Yeah, I, it's not for us to say all we can do is react. And I will say that the scramble was done very well because our response got out very quickly. We're going to be talking about that response here in just a second, but I want to start with the magnitude of these guidelines. They are released only every five years. And so is it really safe to say that these are actually going to be steering the diets of the majority of Americans for the next five years? Well, I will say what they do, their intention is to be the blueprint for every federal food program, every federal food policy in the country uh, looks to the dietary guidelines, whether individuals do or not. They, they may not know that they do, but uh, when someone, if, you, if you're being fed food through any kind of federal food program, and that could, that could be the national school, so your kid eats a school lunch, um, whether you're even in a hospital who just at minimum wants to meet the dietary guidelines, uh, participate in the SNAP food program. I mean, there's a lot of elements to um, this blueprint that does matter, whether you know it or not, whether you as a person will ever read them or not. So they are extremely important to be right, to be accurate, to help kind of steer Americans towards better health. And, you know, I don't need to tell you, Chuck, or probably most of our listeners that America is not really on the right track towards health. We tend to have lifestyles that keep us in these um, danger zones for a high risk for obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. So we need these guidelines to get us, get us on track. And uh, let's talk about your reaction to them. Uh, your assessment that went out in our news release was quite blunt. I, I want to quote this, so I want to make sure that I get it right here. Um, you wrote, and I quote, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue released the guidelines too hastily. They need to be pulled back and redrafted. That's a pretty sharp response there. Why did you go as far to say that they needed to be pulled back and redrafted? Well, upon reading them, and it's it's a 164-page document, um, they offered absolutely nothing new, nothing progressive. Uh, I would say they actually took a couple of steps back in terms of the 2015 Dietary Guidelines edition. So, again, this kind of goes back to why the whole process was a little bit rushed anyway, this round time. There's a lot of, there was less time for the committee to do their work than there had been in previous iterations and previous cycles. Um, but that said, they put forth some good recommendations that were, some were ignored. Um, and it just, it kind of, you know, Chuck, I'm going to steal your word here. It was a very vanilla uh, bland report, 164 pages of, eh, like we kind of knew all this. Like what you're saying isn't, isn't going to get us somewhere new. It's just sort of, it almost is like a look back, a very nice, oh yes, we need to eat better. We need to do better. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have such high rates of chronic disease and obesity and, oh, let's make every bite count. And it just kind of a lot of fluff and no substance, like nothing there, nothing tangible, no action steps for people or uh, organizations, communities to really take to get better. And we do need to get better. We, the status quo is not working. And, and this report definitely, A, ignored some pretty 
good recommendations by the committee, um, but just kind of even roll back, I think, the language in the 2015 report, and it had its uh, guidelines, it had its problems, but at least it was pretty, um, you know, plant-based diets are optimal, and we need to eat a diet that is vegan or vegetarian is kind of an ideal dietary pattern. The language was a little bit stronger, strong enough, no, but certainly stronger than the 2020 guidelines. So for that reason, I felt like, did you even try to incorporate some of the ideas and um, conclusions that your own committee gave to you that they worked so hard on all these years and different organizations like ours spent hours, spent hours, you know, weeks, months, putting forth our comments and ideas too for how the guidelines should go. And none of that manifested in this, in these guidelines. And I can't really, I don't really have a reason for that other than were you just trying to make it by the end of the calendar year for some reason and maybe wait. And, and historically the guidelines have come out actually in the next year. So in January, I would have not been surprised. And in fact, I had already kind of, like I said, concluded, oh, these aren't coming out until January, as has been the norm for the guidelines over the past 10, 15 years to kind of wait to the beginning of the next year. But, you know, these came out so fast. They came out in a, in a very slow media week when most people were off. Um, so they weren't going to get much attention anyway. But I felt pretty strongly about how how in a country, especially during a pandemic, where lifestyle has a big role in the outcomes of this pandemic, we took this document and dumped it, as you say, with absolutely no real good advice anyway to get people moving in the right direction. Well, let's go ahead and try to extract as many specifics as we can from these vanilla guidelines. And let's start with dairy. Um, what specifically does do these new guidelines say as far as dairy consumption? And we should also say, we have talked ad nauseum on this show about the health risks that come with consuming dairy, whether it be milk or eating cheese. But what do these recommendations say as far as how much dairy people should be consuming here? Yeah, so they really didn't change at all, other than the fact that now these guidelines include the age zero to 24 months. That's new. Um, so in that respect, now dairy is being recommended for everyone after the age of one in some quantity. And basically by the time you're a child, uh, nine years old, they recommend at least three servings of dairy a day, um, just kind of across the board. So that's very disappointing because as you said, at nauseum, we've been talking about the risk with dairy consumption for a very long time, uh, decades from PCRM specifically. But in terms of these guidelines, we were so hopeful that maybe they would look to the science, look to other countries like Canada, who finally pulled back on their dairy push in acknowledgement of the diversity of their country and how people do not process dairy well. Most humans don't, um, especially um, communities of color. So we were very hopeful maybe that we would do the same. We would follow their lead um, and then just look at the science and say, yeah, you're right. This isn't fair. We can't be pushing dairy on people who can't even digest it because of the normal biological function of lactose intolerance, um, but also because of the risk with cancers, especially prostate cancer, some new evidence with breast cancer um, and how those diseases are um, prevalent in our culture, but also disproportionately affect people of color. Black women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer, black men more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer and more likely to die from prostate cancer. So we have some health disparity issues that go well beyond the discomfort of lactose intolerance, which in my opinion is enough, but you could, you could go further down that road too. Um, so that was disappointing status quo, drink your milk, um, not not so different than 2015, unfortunately, uh, but that's a battle we're going to keep fighting because there's just too much evidence and it's just, it's, you know, 
it's racist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Let's just uh, say it. And, and, and that's exactly what uh, one of uh, our advocates, NBA um, all-star John Sally had said uh, previously when he testified before the advisory panel was that flat out dairy is racist. And mm-hmm. he outlined why. And you also did a great job outlining why dairy is racist. Um, in the press release that we put out, you mentioned uh, just now that the guidelines hadn't changed. So it's basically still three servings a day, I do believe. Um, and, and you went so far as to outline how it impacts minority communities. But then overall, you also talk about the breast cancer risk. Well, it increases by 80%, the risk of death by prostate cancer by 141%. We're not talking about minimal impact here. You're talking about numbers 80%, 141%. Those are significant and alarming figures to me. Yeah, which is why when the authors of these studies, these aren't our studies, um, the authors conclude the government recommendations really need to be reevaluated because we're not finding these levels of risk with outrageous amounts of dairy consumption. It's at the levels that are being recommended by the government. So let's reassess that. And I also want to point out that we had a, a beautiful letter that was signed by about 500 healthcare professionals um, that talked about this, how these recommendations are racist and how federal food policy needs to update itself. Um, there's the AMA, the American Medical Association's resolution that talked about this, saying federal food policy is, is has embedded in it racial disparities just by recommending things like dairy and dairy and even meat should be optional products um, in guidelines like these, and they just have yet to meet, catch up to science, basically. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about meat in just a second, but th- that the study's authors, uh, the, I pulled the exact quote here because I was looking at that this morning, getting ready for the show. The study's authors wrote, and I do quote here, people should view those recommendations with caution. And so when you throw around a word like caution, that to me also is not a word that you want to take lightly caution. Yeah. 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 And we, we often talk about the precautionary principle, especially when it comes to cancer. If you, if you know that there is some risk associated with some product, um, but the science is mixed or it's like, well, let's err on the side of caution. If we know that there's some science that says dairy is associated with higher risk for breast cancer, I might want to be a little bit cautious, as you said, or use that precautionary principle. Um, Is it a cause and effect? No, it is an association that still needs some research behind it. But, you know, we don't need cow's milk. So why would we even take the risk? That's kind of how I approach diet and um, disease prevention. And as far as the lactose intolerance angle to all of this, it should also be pointed out that the American Medical Association has also come out and and recognized that lactose intolerance is very common, especially among Black Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans. So we're talking again about minority populations. Mm-hmm. Again, goes to the whole point of what John Sally was speaking about and what you were talking about, how dairy can, in fact, be very racist. And yet here we are with these guidelines, three servings a day, ladies and gentlemen. So that is a bit of a mystery to me. But let's also now talk about meat. And that is the big one. Protein, I'm assuming, is is the big driver here. What do these recommendations say as far as what meat people should be consuming, how much? Is it status quo from what it was five years ago? Unfortunately, it is. It's still recommending, you know, lean meat, whatever that means, Um, what they call seafood. So uh, even for pregnant women and kids uh, with some language around the toxicity of fish and how you have to be cautious, right? So again, like, well, gosh, why would I want to consume something that has this... um, this red flag on it. But I think they continue to tiptoe around meat. So sometimes they'll talk about how, um, you know, you, you want to favor high fiber, low cholesterol, um, low saturated fat, but they fail to mention that you basically just described plants. <laughs> There's no meat with fiber. There's, you know, low cholesterol. Meat and dairy are the number one sources of um, 
saturated fat and and the only sources of cholesterol in the diet, but you're not going to get language that's that precise or helpful, frankly. Um, So they continue to push me and they use this vague terminology of protein. So you have this protein group. And years ago, that was progress. Like, great. We don't have a meat group anymore. Um, That is a victory. But now we're kind of moved into this area of a protein group. What is that? Vegetables have protein. Um, Grains have have a lot of protein in them. So what is this? Why do we have fruits, vegetables, um, uh, grains and protein. Like it doesn't make sense. You've got food and then you've got a component of food as its own group. And I think that tends to perpetuate the confusion around well, what is protein? That must be meat that, right? Like what else has protein? If you've got your fruits and your vegetables and your grains over here, and then you got protein, what's left. Um, so I think that's really unfortunate. I think people continue to be confused about protein and when, where you get it, not knowing you get it from virtually everything you put in your mouth that's meant for human consumption. Um, so it's continuing that false language around kind of trying to sugarcoat, propping up meat, basically, and making meat feel comfortable <laughs> with the guidelines. And what I also find confusing in here in the guidelines themselves is they they did not what we'd really hope to see what other organizations and other um, health health advocates have done over the past five, 10 years now, 15, 20 years, is highlight the risks with red and processed meat. It's just you can't get around it anymore. There's so much research to show that red and processed meat consumption are dangerous um, the consumption of those products are, is dangerous and that those products are dangerous and they are not only associated with risk, they cause red and processed meat cause colorectal cancer. So that is a, that is, um, so therefore they are labeled as carcinogens, right? That is a cancer causing food. Yet these guidelines continue to not acknowledge that. In fact, the language around that, although it was, there's a little bit, was minimal, nowhere near the kind of information the public needs about the risk with consuming meat. And in fact, when they go and define their protein group in other places in this document, you know, they list red meat, they list processed meat. So it's as if, you know, it's this schizophrenic um, wanting it both ways, wanting to be the, the, uh, to bring forth information about health but also understanding, well, we have a mandate to prop up meat. We have a mandate to prop up dairy and eggs and agriculture in America. So we, we can't have, we can't do both in this document. So we do some weird um, schizophrenic version of it that does, it is not helpful to the American people. And therefore we continue to be somewhat schizophrenic about what a healthy diet looks like. So it was just, it's unfortunate how weak the caution in this report is, um, therefore leaving everyone thinking, oh yeah, if I just eat meat, a little bit of fruit and vegetables, some whole grains, um, drink my milk and have my sugar. And if I'm a man, I can still have my alcohol. If I'm a woman, I can have a little bit, you know, it's just still, what do we learn? Like we didn't learn anything. There's nothing progressive about these guidelines, unfortunately. Um, at the risk of sounding conspiracy theorist, uh, I got to ask, we know how powerful the dairy industry is. We've talked about Dairy Management Inc. previously on the show and how involved that uh, is as far as uh, working with uh, the government and getting Americans to eat cheese and consume dairy. How powerful of uh, a group was the meat industry, do you think, in shaping these guidelines or keeping them, as we've said, as vanilla as possible? Mm. I think very, I, there's no, it's not even a conspiracy, Chuck. It's just, <laughs> they're out, they're out and proud. Um, if, five years ago, the 2015 dietary guidelines, the report, the huge report that was handed over to the USDA and HHS had an entire section on sustainability. It was new, it was progressive, it was amazing. Okay, great, we're gonna finally talk about uh, the importance of the, the food sustainability in order to have a healthy 
diet and lifestyle in this country. Uh, seemed really obvious. It was time. Maybe it was even past time that they were doing it. They did it. That was the committee put forth this, this huge section. And meat blew up. They went crazy. Not privately, not behind closed doors. Um, no conspiracy needed. Uh, and the USDA caved and said, yep, not going to mention sustainability in these guidelines. And this round, weren't even allowed to think about it, not even allowed to ask about it. Um, as, as anyone in the public who went to any of the meetings, um, it was just a complete, it was a, you were shut down and the committee was not allowed to consider it either. That was a directive. So meat is very powerful. And again, no conspiracy needed. Two members of the committee this round, Beef claimed to have nominated two, two committee members, um, which I think is suspicious. Uh, luckily, uh, the report that the committee members drafted stuck to the science. I think the 20-member committee was strong enough to keep science and evidence in the report versus um, much industry interest, although there's some. Um, but sure, the meat will always have influence, will be a huge filter between the report and the guidelines themselves. They've, they've been that way historically. I, I don't really see that changing. And honestly, as long as the USDA, um, again, who has a mandate to support meat, dairy, and eggs, as long as they have final say in the guidelines, I don't think you're going to get a lot of clear evidence-based health recommendations that are of much use to the situation we find ourselves in, which is we are dying of chronic diseases that are by and large preventable. Really quickly, uh, the recommendations also call for uh, whole grains or, or for grain consumption, but only half to be whole grains. As a dietitian, what is your opinion on only half of your grain consumption being whole grains? Well, I think you miss um, a, an amazing opportunity to get more fiber in your diet, more nutrients in your diet. Um, talk about all the different whole grains that are really palatable and available and inexpensive. Um, it's, it's again, it's, it's recommendations sort of trying to meet people where they are and not really trying to get people to a better place. I think we kind of see that a lot in health recommendations and, and different goals set in um, the healthcare system. And that's what, to me, these are. This is just like, well, people aren't going to want to hear that. So let's not say it. And I just don't think, I am not a proponent. I, I understand talking to people, individuals, where they are and working with them to get to a certain place. But I don't think we have to just throw the bar on the ground and say, there it is, <laughs> you know, maybe you could do better. I think we should should do differently. I think we should say, here's the best. Um, let's see how we can get you there. Maybe it's not tomorrow, but we, we can get you there. Um, so again, another opportunity missed to get people to eat a healthier whole foods diet. I want to touch on a couple of other things here uh, pretty quickly because I know that uh, we're limited on time a little bit, but I was really struck by some headlines that came across the news desk here in the last few days. Uh, guidelines, uh, U.S. diet guidelines, sidestep scientific advice to cut sugar and alcohol. New U.S. dietary guidelines reject recommendation to cut sugar and alcohol intake limit. Another gem, new U.S. dietary guidelines ignore scientists' advice on alcohol limits. So let's talk about added sugars and alcohol because there, to me, the guidelines here are just kind of confusing. They're a little bit hypocritical. Um, I want to before you jump in. I want to read this this quote. This is this is from the guidelines. This is it's unbelievable. The preponderance of evidence supports limiting intakes of added sugars and alcoholic beverages to promote health and prevent disease. However, the evidence reviewed since the 2015-2020 edition does not substantiate quantitative changes at this time. Mm -hmm. Have your cake, eat it too. What is going on? <laughs> right, literally. Um, uh, yeah, so this was when the report came out, um, the alcohol, <laughs> the alcohol recommendation for men to consume um, 
no more than one drink per day. That's down from two. That was the definition of moderate drinking and, and what the guidelines had previously recommended, two for men, one for women. Uh, so this committee said, you know what, there's, there's enough good evidence here to say it should be one for both genders. Um, that was their recommendation. And you, that almost in every news outlet after that point, that was the story. Like alcohol flipped out. <laughs> I guess people who wanted to drink alcohol flipped out. Like nobody wanted to hear this. Um, and they did their commentary. Uh, I'm sure they had their meetings behind closed doors. And the USDA just said, yeah, we're not going to do it. It was too, I think it was too progressive. <laughs> it was like, they just couldn't, they couldn't handle it. And I don't think it was any secret that the, the alcohol industry and it's, it's, it's a powerful lobby um, is, was not going to back that. And it was, it's probably not hard to get even constituents to say, mm -hmm. Oh, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to drink my beer. I mean, you know, it's football season. Who, I mean, who knows, but, know. but nobody wants to hear this bad news. Right. And, and the industry was able to capitalize on that and say, no, 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 no. And the USDA of course is like, okay, okay, okay. And the same with sugar. Um, the committee had recommended a uh, 6% of your calories from added sugar. That's added sugar. I mean, we're not even talking about fruit or anything like that. Um, and as opposed to 10%, which was in the previous recommendations in the USD, you know, that's, that's going to catch the ire of everybody, right? All the snack food industry, soda and beverage industry, which is a huge industry. And they also nominated people on the committee, even though the committee came out and made these pretty progressive recommendations, but they are a big lobby as well. Um, so but despite having some of their nominees on the committee, they came out with this recommendation. No, we need to, we need to lower that added sugar uh, recommendation to 6% of calories. Um, but that's, that's not going to, that's not going to work for a lot of lobbyists. So they were able to, to, to put the brakes on that too. And that's disappointing because that seems really obvious. And like you said, they even, the guidelines themselves talk about how much evidence, you know, but oh, let's, you know, let's wait five more years and see if we can get some more evidence. It's like, oh my gosh. I mean, this is sort of like, this mirrors the whole plant-based effort. We need more science around plant-based dietary patterns and the benefits of them. It's like, oh my God, how much more, how many more studies can people do to show the benefits? And, you know, I believe we have enough, but you'll always be dealing with pushback where they say, oh, we just need a little bit more research on that. It's like, oh my gosh, how much do you need before, you know, millions and millions of more people die um, or live just low quality lives because they don't know what a healthy diet should look like. And we do not have the guidelines that are, that are strong enough or willing to give us the information we need. I will say on a positive note here, though, for the first time, the guidelines include children under the age of two, and they do specifically state that children under that age should have no added sugar. That shouldn't be introduced into their diet at all until after 24 months. That is a big positive. So that's something that we can walk away from feeling good about. True. And they continue what, what every you know, and no one, no child under the age of one should have cow's milk. And we all know that because it can, it just destroys the GI tract, raises the risk of type one diabetes. Um, so at least that, right? Like there are some, and there were some other good things in there, Chuck. Um, if you pay, you know, 164 pages, you kind of had to find these needles uh, in, a, in the haystack, right? But they did admit that higher intakes of red and processed meats are, detrimental to health outcomes. But that was that was it. You'd have to find that and you'd have to, you know, flip past all their recommendations for eating meat just to get there. Um, they did say to keep dietary cholesterol as low as possible. We've had to fight with egg industry over that one who's tried to make that recommendation go away, but that that stayed, thank goodness. Um, they do acknowledge that Americans way underconsume fiber. Um, that um, whole grains are under, I mean, fiber foods are under grain, under consumed by 85% of adults. I mean, that's, I mean, talk about a 
health crisis when 85% of us aren't consuming enough of something. It's like, what is that something? Mm. You know, the way we act in this country it must be protein, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> we are over consuming protein, but we are, most of us are under consuming fiber and the only sources of fiber are plants. So we need to be consuming more plants. Um, and they do acknowledge some things like that peas, lentils, um, uh, legumes are are considered sources of protein for for that ambiguous protein group. Uh, we know that, but maybe it's good just to explicitly state that. And that soy milk is a fine alternative to cow's milk um, in terms of a match for nutrients. Yeah, you know, but, but you kind of have to first buy into the fact that we need cow's milk at all um, to kind of get on the soy milk train, but, um, but at least they acknowledge cow's milk isn't the only um, show in town when it comes to like a high protein, high calcium beverage. Uh, soy milk is perfectly fine in their eyes. So, you know, you have some nuggets <laughs> in there, some truth. Um, but again, it's just not enough to, to save, to save us. Like we need someone to save us. And if we don't have the blueprint on board, it's going to be really hard to get other organizations to to do the saving. Well, we we at the Physicians Committee have kind of our own blueprint. We have our own dietary guidelines. Uh, if you want to head over to pcrm.org slash guidelines, you can check those out. Um, uh, let's go down those uh, really quickly as we wrap things up here. Dietary guideline number one just flies right in the face of the popularity of low-carb diets. Flat out. Do not include a low carbohydrate eating pattern or recommend limiting consumption of carbohydrates. Carbs are your friend here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that and that gets to the point of trying to educate people about the difference between sugar uh, and like added sugar, which is a carb, um, and grains, fruits, vegetables, and beans. Those are carbohydrates too. Fiber is a carbohydrate. So when you start um, being scared of carbs, you start being scared of fiber. No wonder 85% of adults don't consume enough fiber, right? We've got this carb phobia going on that is that is detrimental, I think. We need a more of an understanding of what, what are carbs and what are the different types, um, but we need to be consuming a lot of those healthful carbs. Recommendation number two, uh, what do we drink instead of milk? Water. Yeah, yeah. There's only one, I mean, after weaning, um, after mother's milk, and if you can't um, offer if a baby doesn't have access to human milk from from mom or milk bank, then yes, formula. But after that, water is all you need in terms of being a living, breathing mammal on this planet. Guideline number three, we could talk about this one all day. Warning against consuming red and processed meat. That is a big one. It's huge. And we, and they just, they missed this boat big time. They, they had such a great opportunity to follow other organizations like AICR, American Heart Association, American Cancer Institute. Like everyone is sort of acknowledging this risk exists, except the guidelines. They just cannot continue, uh, bring themselves to, to tell people to avoid red and processed meat. And the final one I think is great. It just sums everything up so nice and neatly. Continue to promote plant-based eating patterns. You do that and everything seems to just kind of fall into place. That's right. And all the healthful dietary patterns that are um, pushed, <laughs> even in the guidelines, at the basis of them all is a plant-based eating pattern. And the report even said, the, the, the report that was by and large ignored in the guidelines said like all the basis all the healthful diets that we know of, the basis is plant-based eating. So if we can just focus in on that, um, we could really have this diet problem solved in a lot of ways. And right, the diet problem, which leads to so many of these chronic illnesses that plague millions of Americans, and not just Americans, certainly not limited to here in the US. I mean, we're talking about global epidemics of chronic illnesses, but the plant-based diet can go to address heart disease and diabetes. If you're overweight, you're obese, it can certainly help with weight loss. It can help in reducing your risk of cancer. 
asthma, so many different chronic illnesses that so many of us have. You eat that plant-based, that healthy plant-based diet. And again, everything just seems to fall right into place. And unfortunately, these new dietary guidelines don't go far enough to address that. So let me end by asking you this. If you were a teacher and these guidelines were a paper submitted by a student, what grade would you give them? Oh my gosh. I don't, you know, like a C minus, like what's the most blah <laughs> grade that you could possibly get? It's, it's not a fail. It's not a total fail, but it's not something you want to show your mom. <laughs> <laughs> not, you don't want to hang this one on the refrigerator. So no. certainly not the refrigerator. No, this is not the transcript to send to college, I guess. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's disappointing. It's just all around disappointing. Um, so, you know what? We're just going to fight harder the next yeah. time. This and, time, like this all starts again. These cycles, even though it happens every five years, like you said, we start kind of back three years. So we got to start thinking of, again, how are we going to how are we going to get this change in there? How are we going to get up to date? How are we going to be evidence based? Uh, how are we going to help people um, through the guidelines? So the fight begins again. So, yeah, really, everything is going to ramp up again what, next year, early yeah. or early 2023 at the latest. Absolutely. We've got to start thinking about the committee members. Um talking to the people in charge at the USDA, the HHS, uh, making sure everybody's on the same page with industry influence and just constantly doing that check, constantly checking in. Uh, don't let anything slip through the cracks. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's the USDA and HHS that have the power to put whatever they want on paper. So yeah. you just have to hold them accountable as much as possible. Right. Well, let's make our voices as powerful as possible as well. Susan Levin, thank you so very much for your time. This has been a really enlightening, and I appreciate you breaking everything down for us. Thank you for having me, Chuck. I appreciate it. There was something else fishy that we didn't get an opportunity to get into during that interview. And that is in the recommendations, in these guidelines, the USDA also is recommending that women who are pregnant eat 8 to 12 ounces of seafood every week to promote healthy brain development for their babies. They say specifically choose fish such as cod or salmon, sardines, tilapia, seafood that has lower levels of mercury which can harm children's nervous systems. So that part of it is good. But what about all the other negative consequences that come from eating seafood? Why is that being ignored? You should go back and listen to some of the previous podcasts that we've done where we've talked about the health myths surrounding seafood. Dr. Barnard and I really did a deep dive on those. And based off of those previous conversations, the best play, undeniably, would be to leave the seafood off of the plate as well. There are other ways to get those nutrients that the USDA is recommending that you get from fish. The guidelines also, by the way, call for babies to be breastfed exclusively for at least the first six months of their life. That too is something new. But the bulk of the conversation that we just had surrounded meat and dairy. So I wanted to, as we close things out here today, talk a little bit more about dairy, just kind of recap it because dairy products are in fact the leading source of saturated fat in the American diet. As a matter of fact, these very guidelines that were just released hypocritically also recommend that people avoid saturated fat because of its link to heart disease. Again, you can't have it both ways. And then, of course, we spoke about lactose intolerance, talking about painful bloating and diarrhea and gas 
none of which is pleasant, but it plagues tens of millions of Americans. Matter of fact, the National Institute of Health estimates that 30 to 50 million adults in America are in fact lactose intolerant, and that includes 95% of Asian Americans, as many as 80% of African Americans and Ashkenazi Jews, and 80 to 100% of Native Americans, as well as up to 80% of Hispanics, all lactose intolerant. And yet, and yet, dairy, three servings of it a day, recommended here in these guidelines. Just north of America, up in Canada, their latest food guide recommends that Canadians, in fact, drink water instead of milk. The same as Susan was just discussing for the Physicians Committee's guidelines and recommendations. But then people will say, well, if you're not drinking milk, where in the world could you possibly get calcium? All you need to do is eat some beans or some leafy greens, tofu, bread, oranges, bananas, potatoes, other fruits, vegetables, beans. They all, they all can be rich in calcium. And then vegetables, beans, also great for potassium. So many health benefits come from that. You don't need dairy to get that. I believe it was Dr. Barnard who once said that, yeah, we have requirements for nutrients, but we don't have a requirement for where we get the nutrients. So why not get them from the healthiest source possible? And then specific to meat, oh my goodness, here we go. Back to the protein thing, right? Where do you get your protein if you don't have your meat? Same sources we were just talking about for calcium, a lot of it. But why in the world would you recommend eating meat when processed meat has been classified as a group one carcinogen by the World Health Organization? And that's not something that they arrived at lightly. No, that classification only came after that group received the opinion of 22 experts from 10 countries. And after those nearly two dozen experts analyzed more than 800 epidemiological studies, that then is when they decided to classify processed meat as a group one carcinogen. 800 studies irrefutable. Among those studies was the finding that eating just 50 grams of processed meat a day can increase the risk of breast cancer and prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer. Haven't even spoken yet about heart disease because another one of the studies that was published in JAMA found that eating processed meat in the year 2012, just in one year, was tied to nearly 58,000 deaths from heart disease, stroke, or type 2 diabetes. We also have plenty of evidence to say that it's been linked to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But here is the big takeaway from all of this. A recent survey of nearly 44,000 adults in the U.S. found that, quote, despite growing public health concerns about processed meat consumption, there have been no changes in the amount of processed meat consumed by adults over the last 18 years. End quote. And why would there be any changes? when these dietary guidelines are not steering us toward that healthier diet. You and I, who are big time nutrition nuts and love learning about this, we're really tapped in. 
but we are the minority here. The average Tom, Dick, Harry, Jane out there, they have no idea. And they will continue to eat that standard American diet, which for the large part is based on these dietary guidelines. And sadly, because nutrition education is not required in medical school, plenty of doctors out there also aren't plugged into this information either. But that, that is where the Physicians Committee comes in. Every year, we hold the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. And our goal with that conference every year is to bring this information to light to these doctors so that they can improve the health of their patients. And instead of just treating symptoms, they can treat the root cause of these chronic diseases. So this year's conference will be held July 15th through 17th. And again, it will be completely online this year. Well, conferences in July, why are we talking about that right now? It's so far away. Well, here's why. Because through March 1st, we have a very special early bird rate to register, just $299. That is a significant savings off of the price closer toward the actual conference date. $299 through March 1st and just $175 for students. And for physicians and pharmacists, nurses, dietitians, health coaches, continuing education credits are in fact available. 20 credits, as a matter of fact. So you can acquire that information and acquire those required CEs as well. Gonna have more than 20 speakers this year, including Dr. Alan Desmond, our friend, Dr. Alan Desmond, gastroenterologist over in the UK. He's also going to be speaking with us on the next episode. He's going to be here talking about his new book, all about gut microbiome and gut health. You're going to want to stay tuned for that one. It's going to be a great show. Plus, Dr. Agarwal will be here. Dr. Lisa Barnes will be speaking. Dr. Ebony Price Haywood from Johns Hopkins will be there. She's going to be speaking about racial disparities in COVID-19 and the social detriments of health equity. Something we just talked about on this very show. She's going to do a much deeper dive. So go ahead and sign up for that right now. PCRM.org slash ICNM. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you once again to dietitian Susan Levin for joining us. And on behalf of everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>